Welcome. Tom Lyford here, and you're listening to my podcast, Boomer Monologues, Season 3, Episode 1. And today's installment is titled, I, Robot. You know, I was 16 years old when I was knocked out by a Rod Serling Twilight Zone episode titled, In His Image. That was way back in 1963. For any younger listeners out there, I imagine 1963 probably sounds like the Dark Ages. As you've likely heard from grandparents, It was a world where the phone booth was the closest thing to the non-existent cell phone you could find. A world where there was no such thing as dialing 911, where cars didn't have seat belts and the automatic shift transmission in cars was a wondrous thing to behold. Gangly aluminum TV antenna roosted atop the roof of every single house in town. And a world where they were still showing a lot of movies and TV shows in black and white. In fact, In His Image was aired in black and white. Anyway, I'm really dying to tell you about that episode. So let's begin with the plot. Main character, Alan, enters a New York City subway station late at night. Oddly, the only other person there is an old woman a religious fanatic who feverishly presses one of her pamphlets into his hands. Alan, however, suddenly overwhelmed with excruciatingly loud electronic tones ringing in his head, believes this woman is doing it and pleads with her to stop it, to get away from him, and to leave him the hell alone. Utterly confused and frozen in fear by his violent, in-your-face reaction, she just stands there gaping, helplessly rooted before him. Exasperated, in a psychotic desperation, he impulsively shoves her down and away, unfortunately into the path of a speeding train. An hour later, with no memory of the incident, he calmly arrives at the apartment of Jessica, his fiancée, whom he's known for only four days, mind you, and together they start the long drive to Alan's hometown. During the drive, Alan dozes off and in his sleep keeps muttering something about Walter. When awakened, Jessica asks him, who's this Walter? And he responds with, what do you mean? I I don't know anyone by that name. Long story short, they arrive and Alan is met by a number of discomforting surprises. One, there are buildings in town he's never seen before, buildings which apparently must have been erected in the single week he's been gone. Two, his key no longer fits the lock on his Aunt Mildred's front door, as it should. Three, the stranger who answers the door claims he's never heard of this Mildred woman. Four, The university he works at is now nothing but an empty field. Five, it turns out that people he remembers seeing and talking to only a week before have been dead for years, 
And finally, in the local graveyard, his parents' gravestones are gone and have been replaced by those of some Walter Ryder and his wife. Now, Jessica doesn't know what to make of this, but she loves him and intends to stick by him. While driving back to New York, however, Alan once again hears the tones in his head and is suddenly filled with a murderous rage. He orders Jessica to stop, then leaps from the car and commands her to drive on. She does so, but then he's running behind the car, brandishing a large rock. Suddenly, another car rounds the bend, striking Alan, leaving him with a large open gash injury to his lower arm. But when he looks down at his wounded wrist, there's no pain, no blood or bone, but instead, twinkling lights amid a confusing tangle of multicolored wires and transistors below his skin. Alan freaks. Quickly, he covers his gaping wound with a cloth. Then he hitches a ride back to his New York apartment where, poring over a phone book, he manages to find a listing for a Walter Ryder Jr. So he hails a cab, goes to the listed address, disconcertingly discovers that his key does fit this door, and warily steps inside. Abruptly, he comes face to face with his exact double, a shy and lonely man named Walter Ryder Jr. Okay, you can anticipate the frenetic conversation that must follow here, the desperate questions Alan will have to demand answers to, and the extreme unlikelihood that Alan will be able to accept whatever the foundation-shaking answers can possibly be. So here are a few intriguing lines of dialogue from the tail end of Mr. Serling's script. Alan, well, what do you mean? Who am I then? Walter, you're nobody. Alan, no, stop it, Walter. That's not true. It can't be true. Walter, well, Alan, answer me this then. Who is this watch I'm wearing, hmm? And who's the refrigerator in the kitchen? Don't you understand? Alan, no, 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 I do not understand. Walter, well, you're a machine, Alan, a mechanical device. Alan, what? I don't believe it, I can't. Walter, and I can't blame you, Alan. I wouldn't believe it either, but it's the truth. The fact is, you were born a long time ago, in my head. What? Now, all kids have dreams, don't they? Well, you were mine, you know. The others thought about oh, joining the army or flying to Mars, but they finally grew up and forgot their dreams. I didn't. I thought about one thing only and longed for one thing always. Just one. A perfect artificial man, not a robot, a duplicate of a human being. Well, it was harmless, not even very imaginative for a child, but then you see, I became an adult. Only somewhere along the way, like most geniuses, I forgot to grow up. 
I kept my dream. And I created you, Alan. Is that straight enough for you? Now, let me tell you that was one fun and entertaining episode back in those days. But for me, it didn't stop at fun and entertaining. That little drama left me kissing my 1960s Aussie and Harriet show worldview goodbye. Rod Serling's Twilight Zone was catnip for my imagination. I think I was suddenly taking a new inventory of this kid staring back at me from the bathroom mirror going over in my head what I'd learned about anatomy and health class and electronics in high school general science. No, I didn't think for a minute that I was a robot or anything, but at the same time, wasn't that kid in the mirror a fella who was electronically wired up inside all axons and dendrites, synapses, mini volts and amps, whose hard skull was up there housing that soft tissue computer thingy running the whole show? Whose heart was really an electronic blood and oxygen pump? Whose nose and mouth were literally vents for oxygen and fuel intake? Whose mouth was a virtual food processor with grinding, tearing teeth and digestive saliva? whose eyes, nose, tongue, fingers, and ears electronically sent their five senses reports to the brain, who had four sort of biomechanical limbs, two for mobility and another pair for reach, who used fingers and opposable thumbs to transport food, which is fuel, into the pie hole whose stomach was a virtual chemistry-set fuel tank that broke down the grub whose liquid waste was siphoned off by a well-designed runoff hose assembly, whose intestines massaged gases and spent fuel rods out the exhaust vent, who came with spare parts, an extra brain hemisphere, eye, lung, kidney, arm, leg, and testicle, and who, like most machines, came with a limited shelf life. Now, I look in the mirror today and I sometimes still see that wonder of biochemical technology gopping back at me. And then, you know, every once in a while, some little thing or other happens to me that takes me back to those comparisons. For instance, one thing that's been bugging me off and on ever since I was a kid is that maybe twice or so a year, I'm suddenly aware of a brief, mysterious, nearly subliminal tone. Now I could be reading, say, or bicycling, or be in the middle of a conversation when all of a sudden, there it goes, right out of the blue. Sometimes in my left ear, sometimes my right, never both at once. And it only lasts 30 seconds or so before fading out. Damned if I have any idea what causes that, but I can tell you what it reminds me of. In primary and junior high school, an audiologist would visit annually to test our hearing for our health records. 
He'd place this big, black, heavy set of headphones over our little ears and play us tones that would range from easily audible to almost inaudible to inaudible. That's what this phenomenon sounds like. Either that or a muffled, low-volume TV test pattern hum from the 50s. It still happens to this day. But I've grown accustomed to it by now and usually joke to myself, just the old brain uploading its periodical software update from the aliens. Or, who knows, maybe I really am a freaking robot like Alan. Eek. Hmm. Yeah. Robots and artificial intelligence, AI. Ever since before the 1950s, the subject of robotics has been burrowing its technological head like a worm into the global consciousness. Sci-fi movies and TV shows, automated machinery taking human workers' factory jobs, and decade after decade, ever more state-of-the-art robotic and AI toys and novelties piling up under our Christmas trees. Rock'em, sock'em, boxing robots children's cute little robot pets, Roomba RoboVac vacuum cleaners, digital chess player software that can checkmate any of you John Henry wannabe chess masters out there, unless you formally ask it to give you a sporting chance. And of course, those nondescript little devices we plug into our living rooms, which, with the open sesame cry of, hey, Google, stand ready to control our thermostat, or play us a Tom Waits tune upon demand. On news networks, we've marveled at bomb squad robots approaching suspicious packages left on sidewalks. We've watched documentaries extolling the never-ending progress of anything from the newest, most improved, and more lifelike than ever sex doll bots to cyber soldier warfare robots for combat. I've watched the testing of frightening, stainless titanium dogs right out of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. And what about those teeny tiny CIA flying robot mosquitoes with spy cams? Driverless cars and even driverless 18-wheelers now tooling down our open highways, taking digital correspondent school driver's ed as they roll. And meanwhile, all of us continue to be plagued every day and all day by ad agencies, AIs, phoning and texting us, goading us into finally surrendering to that unwanted new car warranty. Talk about a brave new world. Today, living among us is a large, ever-growing population of cyborgs. Cyborgs being organisms that have restored function or enhanced abilities due to the addition of some artificial component or technology. So me, I'm a cyborg by definition, because I'm now looking at the world through plastic lenses after my cataract surgery, and I'm listening to it through hearing aids. Now, many totally deaf people today can hear thanks to cochlear ear implants. We've come such a long way since the Helen Keller days. And literally, millions of people around the globe are not only walking about on stainless steel knee and hip replacements, but are also using robotic hands and feet with natural flexing fingers and toes and artificial hearts. Plus, wonders of all wonders. Today, if you want, 
We have robotic organic 3D printers that will print you up a brand new fully functioning liver for your next transplant. I kid you not. Yes, as George Carlin might say, well, isn't that just dandy? To us in our 70s, it feels like the future has already fallen behind us into the past. What do I know about all this? Not much, really, not technically. But like most baby boomers, I've grown up on a long, steady diet of science fiction movies. And these days, you can actually learn a lot about robotics and AI from the movies. In the old days, not so much. Science fiction thrillers in the 50s were so off-the-wall bad, they were known by the derogatory term schlock. As a kid, I tried to watch every one of those that came to town to the local theater. Too many of those, in fact, and way too soon, before I was old enough not to be traumatized. As a result of my helpless obsession, I ended up suffering from an acute case of juvenile robot phobia. For instance, GOG. That's G-O-G, -G, GOG. Haven't heard of that one, have you? Scared the bejesus out of me. GOG came out in 1954 when I was only eight. It's set in a top-secret underground military research facility where scientists are experimenting with cryogenics as a method of slowing down astronauts' metabolism for space travel hibernation. The entire base is coordinated by a single supercomputer, Novak, and its two robot minions, Gog and Magog. Therein lies the problem. For an invisible UFO hovering above the installation gains remote control over Gog. And since the ETs on board are dead set against allowing Earthlings to go rocketing hither and thither through their space, an onset of seemingly unexplainable deadly mishaps have recently ensued. For instance, when one absent-minded scientist haplessly strolls back into the soundproof cryogenic lab late after hours to retrieve something he's left there, the pressurized door automatically closes like a Venus flytrap behind him. It takes a fumbling moment or two for him to catch on to the fact that he's been sealed in but by then it's too late. The thermostat dial on the control panel in the empty observation room outside is now nefariously turning counterclockwise, ultimately sending the room temperature down toward the ultimate freezing point, minus 346 degrees Fahrenheit. He panics, of course, as did we in the audience, having already noticed the deadly frost crawling relentlessly down the liquid nitrogen pipes Sure, he bangs his fists on the plate glass lab window, and of course he cries for help. But it's late in the afternoon, and all of his co-workers have gone home. By now, ice crystals have begun icing his eyebrows and mustache. The gruesome process takes about three on-screen minutes, after which our man in the white lab coat, now a grayish-blue corpsicle, topples like a felled tree trunk. Yeah, me, eight years old. Gog was my first robot, and I hoped it would be my last. But my second was Robbie, Robbie the robot. He, or it, 
crept into my consciousness as part of the cast of the 1956 film Forbidden Planet. Ten years old this time, and still spooked by the thought of dangerous metal men, I saw Robbie as a mechanical ink-black Michelin man, just a tad too stranger danger for pre-adolescent me. Despite the discomfort, however, the concept, primitive as it was way back then, of what someday would be known as artificial intelligence was intriguing. And anyway, Robbie wasn't anywhere near as terrifying as Gog. And by 10, I pretty much knew what everybody else knew in those days. Robots were never going anywhere. They were never going to amount to anything more dangerous than that clunky old Wizard of Oz Tin Man. Well, still, though, you never really knew, did you? My third, and nostalgically speaking, my forever favorite of all time, is the one simply and unimaginatively known as Robot, or The Robot. He, well, it spoke with a man's voice, was one of the main characters in the ensemble cast of the Lost in Space series, which aired from 1965 through 68. Robot functioned as the bodyguard for the crew and its mission of finding its way back to Earth. Although endowed with superhuman strength and futuristic weaponry, he also exhibited such comfortably human trappings as laughter, singing, an occasional sadness, and an entertainingly snide sarcasm, sometimes bordering on mockery. But most endearing of all was the manner with which Robot went about executing his secondary mission, the protective nanny for Will, the youngest member of the crew. His frenetic, danger, danger, Will Robinson, accompanied by his flailing arms, still remains a familiar, iconic echo in today's pop culture. And if Will Robinson loved him, then he was okay in my book. But it was those outwardly human characteristics that gave me my first real inkling of what a creative artificial intelligence might actually look like, be like, someday in the impossibly faraway future. And finally, I must give a tip of my hat to all the robots featured in Isaac Asimov's 1950 collection of short stories titled I, Robot, which I discovered later as a young adult. What a read, what a hoot that book was, and perhaps still is. As it was for me with Lost in Space, Asimov's not taking himself or his premises too seriously was such a delight. Plus, as the budding sci-fi aficionado I was becoming by then, I was fascinated by Asimov's three fail-safe universal laws of robotics. Namely, first law, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. My opinion? All artificial intelligences in real life should only be created with these safety protocols required. Of course, 
<laughs> we all know that's never going to happen since we can never trust our scientists and technicians to actually have the common sense wherewithal to do that. If we could, then such a fate as the Terminator's rise of the machines could be completely avoided. What? You don't think something like the rise of the machines is a realistic possibility? Wow, and Mom nicknamed me the Doubting Thomas. Ever hear of Stephen Hawking? Probably the most respected and eminent physicist the world has known since Einstein? Well, guess what? He left us with the following dire warning. And I quote, The development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Efforts to create thinking machines pose a threat to our very existence. It would take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded. And personally, I take his warning to heart. Not just because of his reputation as a genius in physics, but because I see our human race as a hollow species of sheep who will complacently allow the biggest, greediest, most unthinking fools to run and ruin everything. I mean, hey, if there's quick money to be made by allowing an army of sentient, self-replicating machines free reign, then... Okay, it's time to go looking for Sarah Connor. But hey, I'm not trying to be any Paul Revere here. No, what's on my mind has much more to do with the idea of, and I'm going to call it, our inner biological programming, think gut feelings, that's always on the alert for threats to our personal danger. Like, I just know the ice on this pond is probably too thin. You know what? I'm taking my skates and going home. Or, geez, this too overly friendly dude is creeping me out. I know it may sound crazy, but I'm kind of getting the vibe. He could be a serial killer or something. Gonna end this conversation now. I am so out of here. But okay, back to my thesis here, my big message. Instinct equals biological programming. Instincts are the products of the digital cerebral clockworks controlling all living things' behaviors. The ones and zeros behind bears hibernating, newborn ducklings imprinting on the first biological entity they encounter, Killdeer knowing to lead predators away from its nesting eggs with a comically feigned, broken-winged limping. Cicada nymphs knowing to climb down that tree trunk to burrow into the earth and suck the liquids of plant roots for exactly 17 years. The fun to watch high-stepping mating dances of the blue-footed boobies, where the boobies with the biggest and bluest feet get the girl every time. 
cats purring to manifest contentment, dogs wagging their tails to manifest happiness, and human males, well, human males haplessly manifesting some sexual interest in a way that once made the iconic 1940s movie star Mae West ask, so, is that a rocket in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? You know, these behaviors don't get learned in school. You ask me, the universe is just one colossal, highly engineered cuckoo clock. When I was a pre-adolescent, sometime after having managed by hook and by crook to glean a few basic crumbs of the mystical secrets of the facts of life, I had a question. How in heck did anybody, Adam and Eve included, ever figure out how to do it in the first place? I never could have. Not in a million years. Not without being told. And I was beyond fairy tales, so I wasn't buying that talking snake spilling the beans mythology. So allow me to tackle that question once again, as I'm older now and in a much better place intellectually. For starters, let's consider a little motion picture analogy, okay? And please bear with me for a bit. I'm honestly not digressing here. The opening scene of Arthur C. Clarke's classic movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, is titled The Dawn of Man. Therein, we find a scrawny, ragtag tribe of hairy, ape-like hominids barely eking out an existence on a drought-ravaged African grassland. They're slowly starving, dependent as they are, on a drying-up creek for water and a diet of nothing but the scarce, withering vegetation for which they have to compete with some of the area's scavenging mammals. Now, the audience, of course, realizes that these man-apes are our own prehistoric ancestors. So, apparently, our species is teetering on the verge of extinction. But then, surprise, surprise, our little tribe of unlikely scavengers awakens one morning to discover a stunning, head-scratching mystery. Towering over them in the middle of their barren landscape stands an unexplainable ebony black monolith. It scares the hell out of them. But then, too, a mysterious hum emanating from the obelisk draws them gingerly to it, curious but cautious and ready to bolt. Then, Moonwatcher, the tribal leader, risks a probing touch and gets zapped. And by zapped, I mean, along with the low-voltage electrical shock, dreamlike images rush telepathically through his brain, images of his tribe grown healthy and well-fed. And late that night, he has a crazy dream of himself savagely braining one of the denizens of those four-legged competitors with a hellishly humongous bone for a club. And then, lo and behold, actually ripping a piece of flesh right off the carcass and eating it. I mean, come on, our boy here is a lifelong vegetarian. But next morning, upon awakening, the old cartoon light bulb flicks on above his thick skull because, 
all at once. He gets it. Why, each and every one of those four-legged critters is food. A walking consumable. And Moonwatcher? He's hungry. So what does he do? Well, he just strides right outside the cave and reenacts his dream. Pow! Biff! Chomp! In the next scene, much time has elapsed. Moonwalker's tribe is now thriving, not only from the plentiful protein diet, but, well, let's just say we might have a little pity for that poor and now relatively defenseless saber-toothed tiger out there who'd grown so content, accustomed as it's been to just padding straight into the man cave every third night or so and hauling itself out a kicking and screaming midnight snack. This time, it was in for the big surprise. What was it the Monty Python troop used to say? Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition? I'm betting its last thought on this earth was the big WTF as the bone-club-wielding posse of the night went right to work, crunching its brain pan and fracturing its backbone to kingdom come. Yes, that dream Moonwalker had was one powerful tutorial. So, there was a new sheriff in town now, a thinking man's sheriff, because... Due to what turns out to have been an extraterrestrial intervention all along, our primitive forebears had just received a shortcut on the long yellow brick road of evolution. And this newer moon watcher was no longer the hapless 90-pound weakling getting sand kicked in his face on the beach. Look at that caveman go. Ah, programming. A giant step for man, a giant leap for mankind. So now, back to the question I posed earlier. How in the world did Adam and Eve ever figure out how to do the dirty deed in the first place? I know, dumb question, right? Instinct, man, you just do it. Not really all that difficult, is it? You just know. Well, that may seem to be the case. But no, that doesn't cut it, not totally. There's much more to it than that. There has to be. Remember when you were a child, when you knew nothing at all about procreation, still too young and preoccupied with childhood distractions to give it a thought? I'm talking about that time long before you knew, before you even had any reason to wonder. Well now, let's imagine a hypothetical little population of totally unchaperoned, prepubescent boys and girls of that same age, who somehow get themselves accidentally abandoned and stranded together on a desert island. And let's say there's enough easily accessible food, water, and shelter to keep them alive forever. The Garden of Eden with no predators, most notably no talking serpent, to act as their manual of frequently asked questions. So, it's a given. Survival is guaranteed, okay? These kids will grow up healthily and old. But here's the question. Will there be a second generation of new children appearing on our island a generation later? 
Or will the original population simply dwindle until everyone has died off and disappeared? I say they'll end up to be fruitful and multiply. And I say this because there's a mysterious and universal middle step that occurs at the onset of adolescence. Something that happens routinely, automatically, something that grabs our attention every bit as much as Moonwalker's visions grabbed his, something that snaps you wide awake out of the dream you were having in the middle of the night, a step which provides us with the segue between the unknowing and the knowing. Now, I'm not talking about your parents sitting you down for the talk, nor you gleaning bits and pieces from all the crazy misinformation that's out there among your playground cronies. So what am I suggesting? That extraterrestrials planted a tall black monolith in the middle of this island and beamed all the kids the instruction manual? I don't pretend to know the answer to that. All I'm saying is that there is a definite step. A step documented in adolescent psychology texts. A step that's taken for granted by us after the fact, before the memory of it mysteriously begins to slip out of sight, out of mind, down and far away into our collective subconscious. Textbooks refer to it as the nocturnal or seminal emission, occurring in dreams to both males and females as they enter puberty. So in a sense, it does seem at least a little analogous to Moonwalker's dream epiphany. And hey, if you'd grown up in as puritanical a family as I had, you likely would have woken up shocked, embarrassed, and ashamed, but mostly wondering, what the hell just happened here? I was privately terrified that, holy crap, there was something wrong with me, that something had just gone terribly wrong with my body. I'd sprung a leak of some kind. And whatever it was, the whole happening was obviously one gigantic capital S sin that was going to get me shit-canned from heaven, guilty as I now was of having stumbled onto some unimaginable, unspeakable knowledge that I just couldn't undream. Oh, I strove in my head to defend myself to whatever shocked angels might have witnessed my transgression. Hey, I didn't take no bite of that apple of the tree of knowledge. No way. More like that frickin' apple jumped out and slam bam and thank you ma'am bit me like that dog on my paper route. I'm a victim of circumstance here, if not dream rape. All I was about was trying to get some shut-eye, okay? I swear. I swear to God on a stack of Bibles, I never asked for it. God, it's such a weird phenomenon. The entire dream plot was crazy too, to say the least, because, shockingly, there was, I guess you'd have to call her a surprise partner involved. In my case, some neighborhood girl, someone known to me though not well, whom I'd never given a second thought to, one for whom I'd never felt any attraction whatsoever. I mean, where do these dreams come from? 
and what sort of intricate programming exists in the brain to determine who will end up playing the part of your dream lover or partner in sin. But looking back at the whole thing objectively now, I have to say that the dream did indeed behave like some computer program possibly titled A Glancing Introduction to Sex 101. Glancing, since it hadn't provided me with the entire floor chart of the Arthur Murray's dance steps for job completion. But through a biological form of virtual reality, it had succeeded in allowing me just a vicarious taste of carnal knowledge about myself and about someone else. And, as was the case with Moonwatcher, or even Richard Dreyfuss's character Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it had imprinted in me an obsession, a strong post-hypnotic suggestion to get the hell out there on my quest to discover the rest of the story, whatever that was to turn out to be. And then I guess to probably get her done but this wondrous program must have at least in part accomplished its mission because something gave birth to my libido that night. So whoever or whatever created it certainly knew its business because I'm guessing, oh, an overwhelming 99% of not only just our species, but every living plant and animal species on earth just can't help doing it. This birds and the bees programming to ensure the continued survival of the species is irresistible. It consumes us subconsciously, even though outwardly we go about our lives rarely thinking about it. But subliminally, on the other hand, <laughs> we humans are so under the relentless thrall of our all-powerful internal clockworks, we even celebrate our inner programming in songs. For instance, here are some of the lyrics from Let's Do It, composed nearly a hundred years ago in 1928 by Cole Porter. Birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. In Spain, the best upper sets do it. Lithuanians and Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. The Dutch in old Amsterdam do it, not to mention the Finns. Folks in Siam do it. Think of Siamese twins. Some Argentines without means do it. People say in Boston even beans do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Romantic sponges, they say, do it. Oysters down in Oyster Bay do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Cold Cape Cod clams against their wish do it. Even lazy jellyfish do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Electric eels, I might add, do it, though it shocks them, I know. Why ask if Shad do it? Waiter, bring me Shad Row. In shallow shoals, English souls do it. Goldfish in the privacy of bowls do it. 
Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Kudos to the programmer and the programming. And I still can't seem to stop wondering about whose or what's intelligent design we are. Could be God's, I suppose. Could be one of George Sukulos's or Eric Von Daniken's ancient aliens. Or simply evolution itself, the survival of the fittest and all that, pure and simple. On the other hand, after 75 years on the planet, what the hell difference is it ever going to make to the cosmos or to me if I ever do or never do get to find out? I won't anyway. That's just not the way things work, at least not in my reality. Either way, I'll still be stuck here in this two-bit, one-horse, three-traffic-light Mayberry RFD, plus stuck right here in this intelligently designed but finally rusting out body of mine, until I no longer am. Life just goes on and on and on, until it doesn't. And then there's this. What do we, what can we ever truly and honestly know about anything? Only what our brains tell us, that's all. And whatever that is, is totally dependent on whether the brain is healthy, injured, demented, sociopathic, running a high fever, operating under the influence of prescription or recreational drugs, or what have you. Plato described our perception of the real world as flawed. Nothing more accurate than watching our own moving shadows cast up on a dark cave wall. Shadows cast from a bonfire we've been fated never to be able to turn around and see burning behind us. And these shadows, being the only phenomena are limited to only five senses brains can ever perceive, we lamely claim them as absolute reality itself. So, that shadow up there on the wall, that's you, kid. And the one next to you, that's me. 100% honestly and photographically us because perception is truth. Meaning if one perceives that he is something, that shadow for instance, based on the sum total of all the data his limited brain is lucky enough to receive and to try to interpret, then for all intents and purposes, he is that shadow, isn't he? You and me, just those two misguided shadows ghosting happily back and forth up there, just as Alan, the protagonist in Rod Serling's robot episode, had gone through its so-called human life, believing that, yes, he was that man in the bathroom mirror, right up to the moment of his rude awakening. God. Would you listen to me? Sometimes I wish I just wouldn't think so much. But you know, I can't believe I'm alone in being hung up on this what is it we know and don't know about robots, AI, and ourselves. Just look at the number of movies and TV shows over the decades that have teased us with every possible variation of the legions of scenarios about robotics, past, present, and future. But okay, there's one particular recurring robot-themed news item that's been renting space in my brain for some time. 
It has to do with the much speculated upon future of our species. That is to say, us eventually needing to get the hell off this planet in order to survive. But where to? Well, there's Mars, of course, for starters, because it's closest. And though such a plan was laughed off for decades as some impossible pie-in-the-sky science fiction B-movie plot, colonizing Mars is obviously now becoming a cold, hard reality. But it won't stop there, claim the theoretical physicists. Physicists who keep becoming less and less theoretical by each passing decade. Not with the colonization of just Mars. No. The scope of this, the big picture, encompasses the colonization of other planets eventually. Planets of other solar systems, planets of other stars, or even stars of other galaxies. And here's the thing. They're actually looking to keep our species or at least some evolved future form of our species, alive forever. Because I guess they've come to embrace the fact that the human race will apparently continue forever being hell-bent for leather on sucking out every possible ounce of the resources from whatever throwaway island, continent, or planet it currently occupies to satisfy its holy greed as that is the nature of the beast that is us. Consequently, we're always going to keep needing more and more backup Plan B planets lined up for future habitation and exploitation. So, ready or not, boys and girls, looks like our far future offspring will become planet-to-planet nomads just like characters out of Star Wars. The journey of a thousand parsecs begins with a single planet. It seems crazy, I know. Panspermia is a term for remotely seeding selected faraway planets with processes called prebiotic astrochemistry to induce the production of oxygen, accessible water, and other necessities for the sustenance of the future us. Call it earthification. And as humans can't possibly do this on their own in person, Robots will be needed to travel to and build shelters for, sustaining the incoming colonists beforehand. This will become a process that will need to be repeated as often as other planets are targeted for panspermia. So eventually, perhaps armies of robots will have to be created as the pioneering vanguard for man's manifest destiny. But how could such a project so ambitious ever be realized? Well. In theory, once the first robot platoon completes getting the first base camps set up, they'll go to work at reproducing a new generation of themselves from whatever raw materials are found existing on these worlds. Water, rocks, metals, possible fuels, or what have you. Offspring identical to themselves, whose mission it will be to then blast off to the next selected planet for the repetition of the same two processes there, construction and the spawning of yet another generation of identical or perhaps by then even improved robots and so on and so on ad infinitum wow just imagine self-replicating robots but wait nasa prophesying future robots replicating themselves 
Why, isn't that scenario analogous to what we witness in nature, in all living things? Because that's what we do: self-replicate ourselves over and over, generation after generation. Of course, we have it easy, as we don't have to go about it like self-replicating robots, physically building our replicant offspring with our hands and instruments, because the mechanics of it are already built into us, just like the Intel Core 13 eighth generation is already built into my old laptop. No, we come delivered to the doorstep. Biologically engineered with the bundled hardware and software that programs us to do that. Thanks to some grand designer, we also come equipped with the biomechanical male-to-female, female-to-male docking devices for self-replication. All we have to do is scrounge around for the fuel or food to keep our bodies alive, at least until the point where we can procreate. And then, for the most of us, procreate we will. Because we have to, and you know why. But despite all the relentless inborn instincts that give us the undying will to wage the war for self-preservation against all odds, right down to the bitter end, the final item on my list of man-to-robot comparisons was: both robots and ourselves come quote with a finite shelf life. End of quote. What a classic conflict that is. Try all you want, Buster. You're fated to kick the bucket anyway. I mean, the irony of that wouldn't have been lost on George Carlin. Hey, kid, here. Have a strong will to live. Oh, but by the way, better hurry up and start enjoying yourself because we're all gonna die. Could happen any minute. Okay, here's where I'm going with this. Is it possible that an advanced AI could be so conceived that it too, in a very human-like way, Would rage against the dying of the light, to quote Dylan Thomas, to the point of fighting back against all odds to save itself, like every living thing, from a virus to an insect to a human being. Or would that be a notion exclusively confined to science fiction? I'm apparently not the first to pose this question, you know. Taking a quick look back to the Hollywood movies again. You might remember when the soft-spoken HAL 3000 computer in 2001, A Space Odyssey, by way of its perfect lip-reading algorithms, discovered that fellow crew members Dave Bowman and Frank Poole were secretly whispering to themselves about shutting HAL down mid-mission. It reacted quickly. First, it secretly pulled the plug on all the cryogenically frozen crew members to limit the opposition to two living individuals. Next, it lured Poole outside the ship and successfully orchestrated a fatal accident prank. Meaning, and then there was one. And finally, Hal refused to allow Bowman entry back into the vessel after he'd gone out to retrieve Poole's body. Sorry, Dave. I can't do that. In a similar scenario, in another film, 1970s Colossus: The Forbin Project. Colossus, which was the Pentagon's supercomputer, seized control of all military computers around the globe, and then began aiming the world's many missiles at several countries' most important major cities to protect itself. 
That one kept me up nights and took me a really long time afterward to warm up to computers. Dozens and dozens of films over the years have tweaked out oh so many variations on the theme of robots gone wild. But in my estimation, none have been more well done and thought provoking than 1982's Blade Runner The Final Cut, starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Edward James Olmos, Daryl Hannah, and William Sanderson. Now that's a film that ranks as an all-time favorite in any genre among film buffs, scoring as it does a rare 8.1 on imdb.com. Blade Runner takes place in a dismal, dystopian, always rainy Los Angeles in the near future. Well, actually in 2019, but see, that was the near future when the movie came out in 82. Janet Maslin, a New York Times film critic, described Blade Runner's L.A. as, quote, a canyon bounded by industrial towers, some of which belch fire. Advertising billboards, which are now everywhere, featuring lifelike electronic people the size of giants. The police cruise both horizontally and vertically on their patrol routes, but there's seldom anyone to arrest because the place is much emptier than it used to be. Anyone with the wherewithal has presumably gone away. Only the dregs remain. Okay, the plot. The Tyrell Corporation designs and manufactures superhuman robots called replicants, skin jobs in street lingo. These are virtually indistinguishable from humans, the only testable difference being that replicants have no capacity for empathy. Designed to be used basically as slaves for dangerous endeavors on Mars and beyond, a handful of them have just staged a mutiny, killing some administrators and guards in the process. Five Nexus 6 androids, dangerous combat models, have smuggled themselves back to Earth where they've gone to ground somewhere in the city. Police units called Blade Runners are assigned to hunt them down and retire them, a.k.a. destroy them. Former Blade Runner Rick Deckard, Harrison Ford, gets called out of retirement and soon discovers that the fugitives have been trying to gain access to their creator, the elusive magnate and founder, Dr. Eldon Tyrell. Their leader, Roy Batty, Rutger Hauer, is determined to force this man, with violence if necessary, to increase their lifespans, since, for safety purposes, all Nexus 6s have been engineered with a fail-safe flaw. Each has been programmed to shut down four years to the day and minute from the time they became operational, being objects of beta testing, to be monitored and reassessed continually. By the time Roy finally does manage to get to Tyrell, Deckard has already retired the other four androids. Roy, on the other hand, has likewise retired his maker for refusing his demand. At which point the plot has dwindled down to a tense cat-and-mouse game where Batty is definitely the cat. But by now, the audience is finding itself surprisingly beginning to feel a growing empathy for Batty. For nothing is more human than a strong will to survive. And what is it that Batty feels he undeniably deserves? Oh, only life, that's all. Like you and me, he'd never asked to be created, but created he'd been. Created with every human quality possible. Awareness, memories, false implanted childhood memories of a pseudo-family life, a superior intellect, 
the ability to learn from experience, even a camaraderie among his equally doomed friends. Every human quality possible except two. Freedom from slavery and a long life expectancy. In the final scene, Batty, in a seething rage, stalks Deckard on the upper floors of an abandoned high-rise. Maddened in his grief from discovering his fellow android and lover retired by Deckard, Roy punches his fist through a wall, grabs Deckard's weapon hand, removes the gun, snaps the Blade Runner's fingers like matchsticks, and growls, Now, your turn. But Batty's internal clock has already begun the process of finally shutting his body down. Still, he resumes stalking Deckard, who is now crawling away in agony. Up on the roof, Rick attempts a pitiful leap over onto the next building. Doesn't make it. Instead, he's left dangling by his forearms, hugging the protruding steel beam on the other side. Batty makes the jump successfully and crouches over Deckard as if to gloat while the dirty rain drizzles down, the lightning flashes up the dark and stormy night, and the large air intake fan blades wheel behind him like the very windmill blades from the final scene of Frankenstein. Batty is shutting down. His eyes are wild. He's obviously thinking. And then while Rick, the audience, and I squirm, he launches into a soft-spoken soliloquy. That was irrational of you, not to mention unsportsmanlike. Deckard's eyes are desperate. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? He pauses. That's what it is to be a slave. Deckard's arms are beginning to slip. They are definitely slipping. And then he falls. Quick as lightning, Batty has already caught his wrist before he drops away, holding him for a long second or two, but finally hoisting Rick up onto the roof and laying him out like a wet mackerel on the bottom of a boat. Exhausted, weakened, Rick tries scooting himself backwards, but comes up against a solid wall. He's trapped. Batty kneels on one knee before him. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe, he says weakly. He pauses for breath. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion? His speech is slowing as he struggles to continue. Watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate? He's looking long and hard at Rick now, studying the man he just saved seeming to see him, really see him for the first time, struck perhaps by finding in this man some unexpected commonality that perhaps they both share after all. All these moments will be lost in time, he concludes, like tears in rain. He slumps now. Time to die. Then Rick, crippled and crumpled himself, is seemingly confused by an unexpected question he's struggling with. 
Can a being who has just murdered his very own God somehow find it within himself to show mercy to an enemy? Just how human are these Nexus Sixes? This scene, I believe, is what strikes such a chord in the hearts of the audience. Janet Maslin, the New York Times critic, has described the ending as, quote, both gruesome and sentimental. And one anonymous imdb.com user critic posted, Blade Runner may star Harrison Ford at the peak of his most superbly Harrison Fordiness, but it's undeniably Rutger Hauer's Nexus 6 model android rebel leader Roy Batty who leaves a permanent mark on the audience's psyche. Rutger Hauer's superb acting under the direction of Ridley Scott is one of the main strengths that has driven Blade Runner, The Final Cut, into the American Film Institute's Top 100 Best Films of All Time, the Top 100 Greatest Films at thegreatestfilms.com, and into the number one slot of The Guardian's Top 10 Science Fiction Movies of All Time. No, this is not just some stereotypical average run-of-the-mill sci-fi flick. It's a futuristic Greek tragedy. The story of a man who discovers the humanity he has been devoid of throughout his life, finding it perversely in the man-made beings of artificial intelligence that he's been employed to destroy. It's the story of every man, of humanity. It's my story, in that, like Roy Batty, I never asked to be born into this life, but I was. And you know, it was just great at first, because I was busy being distracted with a happy childhood. But then an ominous storm cloud passed like a vulture shadow over my world of sunshine and lollipops. Somebody let it slip that I was going to die. That we all were. Someday, somehow. Even the little puppies and kittens and goldfish. I demanded to know why and was told that there is a place called heaven. A place waiting for us all just over there on the other side of the rainbow. A place where it is summer vacation all year round. A place better than any circus or carnival or penny arcade. A place where no one ever died ever again. And you know what? To me, that sounded like just another Santa Claus scam. I was indeed Mom's Doubting Thomas. And it wasn't fair. I didn't want to die. But there I was, a little dead man walking. And you know, if I'd been older and Dylan Thomas hadn't written it first, I might have been the one to write, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rage at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I mean, it's bad enough to learn that a single cavalier roll of the cosmic dice gets to determine the length of your life, whether you cash in your chips somewhere between now or a hundred years from now. But imagine poor Roy, who's so much like you and me, except that he didn't even get that dice roll. All he really got was the short end of the stick. Just imagine, only four years, guaranteed. But enough of the Blade Runner, the final cut. Now, I realize chances are pretty good that I'm leaving you thinking to yourself, whoa, 
I just spent an hour listening to some dude who thinks he's a freaking robot. Well, that's okay. I'm somewhat guilty. Somewhat, because I hold to the conviction that, okay, not all, but most of what I've expressed here is a fascination with metaphor and simile. Think what you might about me, but I see myself more speculative about this than a self-proclaimed card-carrying meat puppet. But then again, hearkening back to Plato's cave analogy, we never really know, do we? Secondly, chances are also pretty good that you're probably adding, what a nutcase, like that's a bad thing. And that's okay too. But from my side of the spectrum, nutcases and blondes have more fun. And fun's not all that bad, you know. Your brain can always be a stuffy, alphabetized, boring file cabinet if that's what you want. Or, on the other hand, it can be a virtual amusement park if you want that, if you let it. Now, me, as a one-time school teacher of 34 years, I'm so glad I didn't end up becoming one of those Nazi types whose numero uno mission in life, far and above trying to make his subject interesting, is waging the good fight against such felonies as the chewing of gum in class, the passing of notes in class, the giggling that erupts in class every now and then, or the asking for permission to use the bathroom in class. Because that strikes me as being sort of well, robotic, if you want to know the truth. But of course, everything really is relative, relatively. So if you find fun overrated, hey, it's all good, man. You know, suddenly, I'm reminded of a little philosophical dialogue I picked up from the recent Amazon Prime remake of Joseph Heller's film, Catch-22. In one episode, walking back to the barracks after a harrowing bombing mission, the bombardier Yosarian is typically haranguing the pilot Clevenger once again to wallow with him in his agonizing fixation on the minute-by-minute we're-all-gonna-die horror that has now become his fear-soaked daily life. Clevenger, who's the cool-headed philosopher type on the other hand, counters Yosarian's morbid preoccupation with this. Here's the difference between your approach to life and mine, Yossarian. Yours is like this. Unhappy, 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 dead. Whereas mine is happy, 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 dead. Different life, same ending either way. So, I say... If I want to give myself free reign to wallow in my head full of what-if sugar plums while the Nazi academics around me tweet on their little foul ball whistles and shout, Stop! That's wrong! That's out of bounds! Well then, so what? Que sera sera. But that's enough from me and enough of me. I thank you for listening. And I hope you may have found at least some of this thought-provoking and entertaining. And with that, I leave you with a little something I wrote back in 2005. I, Robot. 
I sing the body electric. State-of-the-art luxury sports utility vehicle of the species. Nothing like me ever was. Built to last. To take a licking and keep on ticking. Modeled after the redundancy principle. Extra kidney, lung, eye, hand, foot, brain hemisphere. The five senses hardwired into software bundled hardware and connected in spaghetti tangles of fiber optic nerves to the mother of all motherboards. My each and every cell vacuum packed with its own copy of the spiro encrypted double helixed micro schematic blueprint. Each digit stamped with its own encrypted model identifying swirl pattern scan code. I am the quintessential self-replicating, self-healing, self-cleaning, psychomedical, chemical robotic circuit city wonder. Drop me on an alien planet and watch me replicate myself. Invent the wheel. Steal fire from the titans. Change the water into wine. And when there's enough typewriters and enough time, I will compose Hamlet. <laughs>